Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Chabot and over the course of this podcast series, we'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the most fascinating cases in recent legal history, all told with unparalleled access to the clients and lawyers closest to events. We start with a daughter's four-year battle for truth and justice after her father was stabbed 69 times by a murderer who'd been released only to kill again. It takes us from the moment that Nicola Gogarty's life changed forever. Your father's dead. That was it. I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, your father's dead. So I literally dropped the phone then and I think my legs went from under me. After the shock came the appalling discovery that the man who killed her father had murdered before but had been released from prison. I was so concerned then that they, they kind of let somebody out like this. There was no psych evaluation done. I still don't understand how that is allowed because when somebody of such a violent nature is allowed back into the community and they don't psych evaluate them, it, I think it's crazy. Then we hear how Nicola fought to find the truth about what led to her father's death and how, with the help of her lawyer and victim support, she exposed flaws in the probation service and was able at least to find a little peace. For myself and my dad, this is why I fought so hard, because I knew that things weren't right in my heart and soul. There was other things that needed to be found out. I've had a lot of those questions answered, which can put my mind a bit more at ease. In July 2015, Nicola Gogarty was waiting to board a plane in Dublin Airport when news came that her loving, fit and healthy 65-year-old father, John Gogarty, had died. It was the first in a series of shattering revelations for Nicola that set her on a path to expose serious failings by the probation services. Those failings had allowed a convicted murderer to go free and kill again. I caught up with her to find out more about her story. You'll also hear from her victim support worker, Rachel Laws, her lawyer, Kim Harrison from Slater and Gordon, and from Chris Byrne, a journalist with the Yorkshire Post, who followed the case closely. Let's start with Nicola telling me a bit about her father. He was really good. He was very supportive. He was a problem solver. Anything I had, I always went to him with. I was buying a car, I wanted this, so he'd always help me with different things. Always a good person to talk to about whether they were light stuff or heavy stuff. He was always my go-to person. Nicola's father, John, was brought up in Drogheda in County Louth. He grew up near the coast enjoying an idyllic childhood right next to the beach. Nicola has fond memories of growing up with her father playing on the beach behind the family home. But in the 1980s, the recession hit the country hard and John sought work in the UK, first in London, then settling in South Yorkshire. He originally worked in London because he was by trade a TV engineer and then he had a B&B in London as well, so he did both at the same time. And then he moved up to Yorkshire and he had a haulage business and then he started to buy property and like old property and do it up. Yeah, he's always one for his fingers and a few pies, if you like. Nicola's father had two more children with a partner in England called Alison. They were a girl, Phoebe, and a boy also called John. Despite the distance between them with Nicola in Ireland and her father in England, they kept in touch. Nicola saw him often and says they were best friends. John was living alone in Barnsley when he was killed. Their last contact is etched in Nicola's memory. I was rushing that day. I was going to work. So it was literally a, a quick goodbye, a hug and a kiss. And I said, oh, I'll see you in a couple of days. But then you replay it in your mind. Oh, I should have gave him a bigger hug. But obviously you're not going to know these things are going to happen. But you do replay it in your mind. 
you never know, I suppose, what's around the corner. Or That was the last time I seen him. Within hours, Nicola's father was murdered. She was in Dublin Airport, about to leave on a holiday with friends. We were going down to board our flight. My phone rang and it was my brother's number came up and I hesitated whether to answer it or not because we were kind of rushing to the gate. But I answered it anyway and uh, it was my brother's mum, Alison. You know, I thought there was initially something wrong with my brother, but she said to me, can you sit down, can you sit down? And I said, I'm actually rushing for a flight. I said, like, what's wrong? And she just said to me, your father's dead. That was it. I said, what what do you mean? And she said, well, your father's dead. So I literally dropped the phone then. And I think my legs went from under me and my friends had to take over then. So I I don't know what was the rest of the conversation because I'd only seen him a few days ago and his health was quite good. I just didn't understand how he was dead. Many of us have had or one day will get the call that says a parent has died a moment of great change in anyone's life. But this wasn't a routine death. Her brother John had found the body covered in blood. He spoke to Nicola about what he'd seen. My brother was obviously in a state of shock. I was saying, can you check him and like make sure that he's actually dead? Because I obviously didn't want to believe it. And he said, he is dead. Like, there's blood everywhere. And he said his shirt looks like a cheese grater. And it looks sinister. Nicola told me the events leading up to the discovery of her father's body. My brother was trying to get my dad on the phone and my dad had two phones so he'd one for his business and obviously his own personal phone. The two of them were off so it's very unlike my dad. He would never ever turn off his phones and my son, my brother was living in Leeds and he just got in his car and drove down. When he came up to my dad's door I think my brother would have had a key for the house but he said he could see little specks of blood on outside the door and he said the door was actually opened he didn't have to unlock it my dad I think he was lying in the fetal position just covered in blood my brother said he went upstairs obviously he thought it was just after being an intruder there he didn't see anybody and he ran back out of the house to ring his mum so what had happened to Nicola's father let's hear now from Chris Byrne a journalist who covered the case for the Yorkshire Post he describes how John Gogarty was found. He was found lying on the floor of his front room covered in blood by his son. A shocking, awful scene for his son to find. There was also, at the scene, a receipt for an ATM bank machine showing that £500 had been drawn out. That, that receipt had been left near his body. Detectives who later searched the house discovered a number of valuable items from the property had gone missing, including expensive watches. Nicola learned later that her father had been stabbed repeatedly. 69 times. Yeah, quite a lot. At what point did you find out that your father had been murdered? The police officer rang me at about 2am and said she believed that he had been murdered. I remember being on the phone to her upstairs in the hotel and I just fell to the ground again because I just didn't understand any of it. It was just too surreal. The police came to the hotel the next day and they obviously confirmed that he had been murdered, that he was stabbed to death, but I asked how many times he was stabbed and they couldn't tell me. They said they couldn't give us that information at that time. So we didn't know for a long time after, until the trial, the amount of times he was stabbed. What did you do then? You had been staying in the hotel. Events mm. unfolded rather quickly. The police came down. We were all interviewed, not 
in a suspicious way or anything like that, but just asking if Dad had any enemies, was he disliked by anyone or would you know anyone that would want to hurt him or anything like that? And we didn't because he was a very quiet man and he was also very security conscious in his home. I didn't even understand how these people had got in. He locked the door the minute he came in. He'd only let you open the door if he knew who was at it because he was burgled many, many years ago. Later, obviously, these details started to unfold. During the later trial, Chris Byrne heard the details of what had happened to John Gogarty. Some of the blows that had struck him were so strong they'd cut through the bone of his ribs. It was a truly horrifying attack. In terms of the police investigation, the cash machine receipt, which was from a nearby bank machine, proved to be vital evidence as a timestamp on it led to the recovery of the CCTV of a woman drawing out the money before returning towards Mr Gogarty's property. And it also gave the police a good indication of roughly when the offence may have occurred. The police identified the same woman and a man who had been seen walking towards Mr Gogarty's house in the minutes before, and they were quickly identified as a pair called Ian Burley and Helen Nichols. They were watching him from the top of the street and he was taking his shopping out of the car and he obviously forgot something. So he went back out to his car to get whatever he needed and they followed him back in and literally pushed him in the door. And that's where it all happened then. And what did happen? So I think initially Ian Burley stopped him twice to get the number of the card, the bank card. And I think my dad... Obviously, I think he got the number wrong with nerves. Um, And I'm going by what Helen Nichols said at the trial. She went up to the bank machine, which is at the top of the street, and she went up and withdrew £500. And I think when she came back down, Ian Burley was still stabbing my father. Chris Byrne explains why John became their victim. Well, the investigation revealed that Burley and Nichols had targeted Mr Gogarty, who was known in the local area to carry um, decent amounts of cash on him, and they targeted him so they could steal money and goods to pay back a debt that Burley owed to a Sheffield drug dealer for crack cocaine, and Burley, in the days before, had been getting some quite serious threats from the drug dealer and his associates about what would happen to him if he didn't pay. Burley attacked Mr Gogarty on his doorstep, got him to hand over his bank card and give them his PIN number and Nichols went to get the money. When she returned a couple of minutes later, Burley stabbed his victim to death in this horrendous frenzy before they they ransacked his house. As John lay there dying, Burley and Nichols rifled through his treasured possessions, including his collection of champagne. The pair even stole a bottle to toast their crime when they returned to their flat later that evening. The truth about Burley, though, is that his crime did not come out of nowhere. He'd murdered before. He was a convicted killer who was out on licence and had killed another man called Morris Hoyle 20 years before in rather similar circumstances. Mr Hoyle, like Mr Gogarty, was in his 60s. He was a retired brewing clerk. He'd been hit, bludgeoned with a whisky bottle and had his head stamped on in this horrifying attack in Barnsley in his own home, just four miles from the scene of the second murder. Nicola remembers finding out about Burley's violent past. I got a phone call. One of the family liaison officers rang me. Again, it was the middle of the night, I think, half two or something like that. 
and she said that they had charged Ian Burley and Helen Nichols with my father's murder. Obviously, I was glad that they had caught whoever did it. But she said to me initially, she said, I have something else to tell you. The man that has murdered your father is only out of prison not long. He's also murdered another man in 1995. And that really shook me. Why is he out on walking the streets? If he was after doing the same thing to somebody else, it was another pensioner. Um, he was a 69-year-old man. And he was only out of prison just over a year. So for you, something that was a personal tragedy suddenly became so much more complicated. Yeah, and I obviously wanted to know a lot more about his previous murder. I obviously discovered a lot more about him. Then I got hugely angry because he'd taken my dad's life and he'd also taken somebody else's. That's a very hard part to get over. It was a similar kind of attack, Very similar, yeah. Uh, Very violent. There was no knife involved in the previous murder, but he was very violent to that elderly man as well. Tell me about the trial. Um, the trial was horrendous. The worst thing I've ever had to sit through or do or anything like that because I suppose everything is in so much detail and you learn about where they stabbed your father, how many times, what way he was lying. is pretty horrendous. Yeah, you learn a lot about things that you don't really want to know. I mean, I was I hysterical, I suppose, for most of that trial and I ran out of the court a few times as well because I just couldn't stomach listening to the stuff that they were talking about. And then you have to look at the perpetrators as well every day, so that's not easy either. And when they show no remorse, it's quite difficult to sit there and look at them knowing that he killed my dad with his, with his hands. It's a nightmare. Yeah. What did you think when you were looking at them? I won't uh, say what I thought. Um, they've no soul. You can tell that they've no soul. With every new and horrific detail that emerged, Nicola struggled to cope. The feeling of despair was overwhelming. During this time, she was able to count on help from Victim Support, a charity which for more than 40 years has helped victims of crime and traumatic incidents. Nicola worked with Rachel Laws from Victim Support Homicide Service and they've become good friends. We brought the two of them together to hear about the support Nicola needed at this time. It's a really difficult time for them going through a trial because they're often hearing things that they've not heard before. You know, some of the information the police have to withhold. They, they are good, they tell them as much, but there's still surprises at the trial and it's, it's very graphic. Mm. And we usually find the families find it quite hard because it seems to be all about the defendant. They're sitting there listening to some horrific things about their loved one. We try and prepare them for it as much as we can. I think it kind of the trial, in some way, I think kind of re-traumatise you, yeah. if that makes sense. Because um, there was lots of stuff I didn't really yeah. know. And then I actually seen pictures, which were probably not meant to see, but I did see some pictures. Yeah. And that was quite traumatising because really? I, I you know I've seen some pictures of my dad because that's imprinted in your brain then absolutely yeah. it's really hard to move that then isn't it you know you always have those visions then yeah and yeah. then there was a conviction yeah <clears throat> and life terms yeah Ian Burley got um, a whole life tariff so the judge said that he he will die in prison and Helen Nichols she got 20 years life life 20 years 
was that the end of it for you? No, because I obviously had a lot more questions in my head and I wanted to know more and I wanted to get in too deep as to how this actually happened to my father. They basically handed us a report for it was about 11 pages long and we were reading through it and, you know, I was quite shocked, I suppose, at the things that I was reading about him and his behaviour like his behaviour coming towards the end of his sentence in prison, then when he was in the AP house, which is approved premises. So that's where he went for 10 months after he got out of prison. So he was still supervised. He was still drug tested and stuff like that in the approved premises. And he got out of there in the December 2014. And then he obviously went into his own accommodation in the community, which he was no longer drug tested or anything like that then. But alarm bells went off for me when I was reading the report because of his behaviour, because of how many times he was caught with drugs and alcohol and that they didn't actually do anything about it. So where next for Nicola? The criminal trial may have been over, but the failings she'd uncovered in the way her father's killer had been dealt with spurred her on. She wanted to know why Burley had been released from prison. He'd been let out on licence. That's when someone with a life sentence is allowed to resume life in the community, but can be recalled to prison at any time if they breach their conditions. In this case, something surely had gone wrong. Nicola contacted Kim Harrison from Slater and Gordon. Thankfully, not many cases like this cross my desk. Quite an unusual situation. Mm -hmm. The first thing I wanted to do was, was listen and try and take down as much information as I could about what Nicola knew and and it wasn't Nicola's fault but because she wasn't able to take away this report what Nicola knew was quite patchy. So what did she know at that stage? She knew that something had gone wrong potentially and that this report was critical in some way of the probation service and what it was was it was a report into itself so another part of the probation service not linked to South Yorkshire, did an investigation into what had happened at South Yorkshire. But you were able to tell me sort of snatches, weren't you? But the full picture yeah. was still very patchy. And so what I was then trying to do is to put that together as best I can and think about where we go from there. It seemed to me that the best way through this would be to try and get an inquest reopened. An inquest is a hearing into the causes of someone's death. They're quite rare. In Nicola's father's case, there had already been one, but it hadn't provided answers about how the killer had been allowed to leave prison. Kim Harrison began to work towards getting the inquest reopened. The inquest was very much a paper-based affair, wasn't it, the first yeah. time round? Yeah. It wasn't a full-blown inquest where the coroner was hearing all the evidence because that was done to a certain extent in the criminal trial. But what we were saying is that part of the problem with the criminal trial is a criminal trial is only there to work out if somebody's innocent or guilty of the thing they've been accused of, the criminal trial isn't trying to work out whether that person should have been released in the first place or whether the probation service had monitored them properly. That was the questions that you had, Nicola, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Chris Byrne also thought a new inquest was important. Perhaps the need for an inquest was underlined when I attempted, on behalf of the Yorkshire Post, to get hold of a copy of the Ministry of Justice's internal review of what had gone wrong through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and, but that was rejected on the, I thought, fairly extraordinary grounds that they wanted to protect Ian Burley's 
personal data, as they termed it, so they wouldn't release the information. So there was nothing in the public domain about what had actually gone wrong. So having an inquest after a murder trial is extremely rare, and the coroner in the case actually said that it was only the second time in more than 27 years of his time in that role that he'd ever done something like that, ever ordered an inquest of that nature. Kim Harrison told me about the process in getting the inquest reopened. We went through quite a a long process. It might be better sort of to take it back a step. So there was the initial hearing where the coroner decided to to have the inquest, which was obviously really good news. Mm. And then there was about a year between that and the actual inquest, and that year was then another information-gathering exercise, and the coroner has powers of forcing organisations like the Probation Service or the NHS or whatever it is to disclose documents to them as part of that inquest process. There were files held by the Probation Service, the NHS, the prison and the courts, and it quickly became apparent that there were red flags around Burley's behaviour and the potential risk he posed to the public throughout. Yet no one stopped him. Once all of that documentation came in, we started to review it. And the more we saw, the more worried we were, weren't we, Nicole? Yeah. We had a number of conversations in yeah. that year where I was just saying, I've had this in now and this in, and and actually... Um, it, it kind of got worse. It got worse, It got worse, it? the information that we were getting in. What kind it, of information? Just more about Ian Burley, like his behaviour, um, what he was like in prison. He initially got 12 years and he served 18 that alone speaks volumes really about, you know, he didn't get out after 12 years that he had to serve an extra six. And like he was being tested for drugs before his release was delayed. He had a lot of adjudications, was it, in, mm. in prison. So he's clearly quite a violent person, doesn't adhere to rules or regulations or anything like that. And that's why I was so concerned then that they let somebody out like this. There was no psych evaluation done anything like that and I I still don't understand how that is allowed because when somebody of such a violent nature is allowed back into the community and they don't psych evaluate them it, I think it's crazy And what, what happened when he was let back out into the community? Well he was just a free man to do what he wanted he was drinking, taking drugs partying, you know Breaking the terms of his licence? Straight away, yeah they turned a blind eye as far as in my opinion anyway somebody that's in the community and is so dangerous, it's not right. I think they should have been watching him a lot more closely than what what they were doing. What do you think went wrong, Kim Harrison? We heard quite a lot of evidence at the inquest and it was a, a really quite a valuable process in holding people to account and that's one of mm. the real benefits of an inquest because the coroner calls witnesses to come and speak about their part in all of this and a number of people from the probation service gave evidence including the probation officer that had been responsible for Ian Burley and her supervisor and had a lot of scrutiny and a lot of questioning from the coroner and from our legal team. It seems that there was lack of understanding about the danger that this man posed but also about what the breaches in his conditions could signify. So the first time he breached his condition and was found under the influence of alcohol, he was given a final warning. And then he breached again on a number of occasions and was given a second final warning. Now, most people see that as a bit 
odd because a final warning should a final warning. be what it says on the tin. The coroner was very critical of that and thought the first warning shouldn't have been a final warning because then once the, the other breaches occurred later on that year, that second final warning just didn't have any impact by them because he'd already been given one final warning and not complied with it and got a second one. So there was no momentum or incentive for him to actually behave himself. They were going through the motions of doing all the paperwork and doing all the documentation, but there weren't actually real conditions attached which had real consequences for him. And, and the second thing was when when these later breaches took place in the May of that year, May 2014, which were more serious, which involved failing tests for methadone, refusing to take tests, lying and, and, and being quite deceitful about the causes of the positive tests. So all sorts of behaviours which should trigger massive alarm bells within yeah. the probation <laughs> service, given his, his history and given that he's known to be somebody who becomes violent whilst under the influence of alcohol and drugs. The coroner really thought that recall should have been considered at that stage and obviously had he been recalled to prison in the May 2014 then he may never have been released again by the July when Nicola's father was murdered by him. There were files held by the probation service, the NHS, the prison and the courts and it quickly became apparent that there were red flags around Burley's behaviour and the potential risk he posed to the public throughout. Yet no one stopped him. Chris Byrne is in no doubt of the importance of the inquest. The coroner ruled that Mr Gogarty would be likely to still be alive today if Ian Burley had been recalled to jail but what the family have done and what's so important is they've established the truth of what happened to their father and why. And hopefully one of the things that will come out of this, because the probation service themselves have apologised for what happened and said they're going to try and learn from it, is that other families don't have to go through this. When people who have been in jail for years for extremely serious offences are released back into the community, that a closer eye is kept on them. So I think the the Gogarty family have done a actually genuinely really important public service because it, it took them a few years and it was a hard battle, but I genuinely think it was very important and very much in the public interest. Inevitably, the inquest took a toll on Nicola. I did get very upset on the last day of it because... Nothing obviously is going to bring him back. But for myself and my dad, this is why I've always have done this. And I fought so hard because because I knew that things weren't right in my heart. And so like that there was other things that needed to be found out. And obviously with the help of Kim, I've had a lot of those questions answered, which I suppose can put my mind a bit more at ease. And how do things look for you now? I mean, I suppose you have to try and get on with your life Um and I'm trying to do that as best I can, um, just to get out of my family life with my kids and my husband. But it's always difficult. I think you'll never fully get over it or anything like that. It's it's quite a huge hurdle, I think, to cross four years in. But I think with time is a good healer. And you're going to be taking yeah, I'm a going psychiatry, to, a, uh, psychotherapy. Psych- yeah, I'm going to do a degree in psychotherapy now so I can help other people who maybe going through something similar. So I'll be properly trying to help them in a professional manner. I think one of the most powerful things for me was when we had that um, conclusion, the coroner called it a conclusion when he reads it out, although we know it is a verdict, the coroner's Mm. verdict, but the, the proper word is conclusion. We all felt this weird thing of 
absolutely elated that everything we all our hunches have been proved yeah. correct and that the yeah. coroner had written it all down in such a comprehensive way and we got all these findings but at the same time absolutely devastated that this had happened and we yeah. all sat in the room for about an hour just in bits really yeah. and then yeah. everyone went downstairs and the family just walked out of the door and all hugged each other and put their arms around each other and and the media wanted to, to talk but they all went out together as as a group of people as a family together and I must say in my 15 16 years of of work it's probably one of the most emotionally charged powerful things I've ever seen to see a family come together like that and support each other in that way was truly incredible absolutely incredible Oh, to do. You. And we end this episode of The Case Files with that image of a family united in grief, but also having found some comfort in uncovering the truth. Our thanks to Nicola Gogarty for telling her story, to Rachel Laws from Victim Support, Chris Byrne from The Yorkshire Post, and Kim Harrison from Slater and Gordon. You can find out more on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Search for The Case Files or have a look at our website slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>